So we're back in the big room this morning. Now, Lord willing, this uh, next semester we're going to be going through the book of Galatians, but not just yet this morning because I, we don't have the full uh, students coming back yet this week. And then next week, uh, Jason's going to get uh, have a meeting with the students. So. Lord willing, in two weeks, we plan to start the book of Galatians. So just to give a heads up of what's going to be coming. So these, to this week and next week, we're just going to do some uh, topical study. And this morning, we're going to be in the book of Colossians, chapter 3. So if you want to turn there, there's where we're going to be. So let me start with a word of prayer, and then we'll start. Our Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning with thankfulness, with thankful hearts for the fact that we can come together this morning around your word and just be blessed by your word. And pray that uh, you will oversee everything that I said this morning and that we may be edified and matured by your word this morning. We commend ourselves to your care, guidance, in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, as we look at this chapter, we're, we're going to be mainly going through the first nine verses this morning, kind of an overlook of the, this section. And we'll be relying on the teaching of Pastor John MacArthur on this. And as we think of the, this section, it's an important section in terms of the believer's life because we as Christians are of Christ's kingdom, and um, which is not of this world, as John 18.36 tells us. We have overcome the world through faith in Christ, 1 John 4, 5, 4 and 5. And we exist in this physical world, but spiritually we are already citizens of another kingdom. And so... In this passage we're going to look at this morning, it has some important, important uh, truth for us as believers as to how we live here on earth while citizens of a different kingdom. We're strangers and exiles on the earth, Hebrews eleven thirteen, And because we do not have a lasting city here, but we're seeking the city which is to come, Hebrews 13, 14. So with our citizenship in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, Philippians 3.20. And we are aliens and strangers on this earth, 1 Peter 2.11. So we are in the world, but we are not of the world. And we must fulfill the command of Romans 12.2. It states, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And it's only when we rise above the world that we can both appreciate the appalling spiritual poverty in which we find this world system around us and people in it. And we learn to fix our mind on heavenly realities. And even so, in that state, we really do even appreciate the world around us more because we are then more realistic and true plane. 
Christ is in heaven. Ephesians 1.20 says, which he brought, he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Our blessings are in heaven. Ephesians 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. Very important note. And we, through our union with Christ, in his resurrection, we exist in the heavenly realm. Ephesians 2, 6, made us alive together with Christ and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And you notice in those, in those passages, the importance of that, this is in Christ Jesus. And because the things... The most important to us are in heaven. We must not be entangled in this present world. Now, that's a tough task because we are prone, of course, to be focused a lot on the fact that as we live in this physical world, we do have to function within it, and it's easy for us to be entangled in it more than we should. Now, all these scriptures provide the backdrop for Paul's message in, the, in Colossians chapter 3. And we'll start with reading then verses 1 through 4. Colossians 3, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, if you have been raised up with Christ, keep seeking the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Now, as he begins here by calling the readers to the preoccupation with heavenly realities, Paul has a hallmark of true spirituality and points out the fact that this is what we must live here as believers in terms of our practical holiness. He unfolds the power here of heavenly living. Heavenly living on earth, because that's the reality where we are. Paul begins here, first of all, in verse 1, by reminding us of a foundational fact. He says, if then you have been raised up with Christ. Now that word if there denotes a reality and so it's better translated since. So it reads, since you have been raised up with Christ, because it's stating a fact that is a reality in the believer's life. It's not a, a questionable truth. It, it's a fact. Believers having been raised up with Christ is not in doubt. The, the verb actually means to be co-resurrected. When you have been raised up with Christ. It has the sense of being co-resurrected with Christ. It is an accomplished fact. So believers spiritually are entered into Christ's death and resurrection at the moment of our salvation. We're entered into Christ's death and resurrection. Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, 
who loved me and delivered himself up for me. Now in that verse, the Apostle Paul shows the union that we have, the union of the believer with the Lord so that we have a shared life with Christ. Romans 6, 3-4 teaches that same truth. It says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Notice here that newness of life is the result of our union with Christ. Now the baptism is mentioned here, of course, is not baptism into water, but, it, but an immersing into the Savior's death and his resurrection. Through our union with Christ, we have died, have been buried, and have risen with him. By saving faith, we have entered into a new dimension, that is the heavenly realms of which Ephesians chapter 1 speaks of. Now, we possess divine and eternal life, which is not merely an endless existence, but a heavenly quality of life, which is brought to us by the indwelling Lord, the indwelling Holy Spirit. And so we are alive in Christ to the realities of this divine realm. The problem is sometimes of you know, the fact that we're talking about a divine realm in the heavenlies. Some people take this as a sort of a mystical thing, and so they, they look for some mystical experiences related to that. And we don't find that, neither in the passage we're looking at this morning nor other passages related to that. Now, consequently, though, Christians, though, we have an obligation to live consistently with those realities that are mentioned in these passages. This new life is real and powerful, but so is remaining sin. So we live in two realities. The reality of the heavenly realm, which we are because we are in Christ, but at the same time the reality that we have remaining unredeemed flesh, and therefore we do have consistent battle with sin. And so, though it is no longer our master, sin can still overpower us if we're not presenting ourselves to God as servants of righteousness. And this is the, the, one of the main purposes, of course, of this passage that we're looking at this, this morning, Paul writing, because spiritually, as Paul says in Philippians 2.12, we must work out that inner life. We might, must work out our salvation. And that is the process of living the reality of our union with Christ. And that important concept of our union with Christ, which is present in this passage. In him we have all the resources necessary for the Christian life. In him we lack nothing to carry out the commands that are presented in, in this passage that we will be looking at. Now Paul here is interesting, emphasizes, of course, in this passage, the centrality of Christ. And if you notice throughout the, these four verses, he mentions first in verse 1, says with Christ, and then in verse 1 again, where Christ. And then in verse 3, with Christ again. In verse 4, when Christ. And then verse 4 again, with him. 
So again and again, he stresses Christ's total sufficiency for the believer. We lack nothing in Christ. Consequently, because of not knowing what Scripture says or knowing it but not applying it properly, we sometimes can be intimidated into thinking that we need something more than him alone to live the Christian life. And Paul will say a resounding no. Now we can therefore fall prey if we are not in the knowledge and application of Scripture to either philosophy or to legalism, to mysticism or asceticism, different venues which people throughout the centuries have looked at when they have not been grounded in the truth of Scripture. And Paul reminds the Colossians that they have risen with Christ. This is the path to holiness. Not self-denial, not mystical experiences, not rituals. We are no longer living the old life we lived before our salvation, but possess the eternal life of Christ and have been raised to live on another plane in the heavenly realm. Now, we must not be ignorant or forgetful of who we are and how we are to live, and so this passage reminds us. All sinful passion is controlled and conquered by the indwelling Christ and our union with him. Now, as go on in verse 1, the second part, and in verse 2, Paul says, keep seeking the things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. And here he points out what is our role, what is the we are required to do, our obligation, so to speak, our charge. Now the present tense of the phrase keep seeking indicates that this is a continuous action. This is not just something that you do sporadically or we do sometimes and other times. No, it is a continuous action that occurs that is supposed to be going ongoing. The preoccupation with eternal realities that are ours in Christ is to be the pattern of our life. Not the exception, but it's to be the pattern of our life. And Jesus put it this way when he said in, in Matthew 6:33, Seek first his kingdom and his king and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. And he's speaking, of course, of necessities of life and, and worrying about necessities of life. But again, the same concept of seeking first the kingdom of God. And as we already mentioned, Paul is not advocating here a form of mysticism. Rather, he desires that our preoccupation with heaven is the governing principle of our earthly responses. And this is an important perspective. Our preoccupation with heaven is not just something which is out there and it does not apply, but it, it's preoccupation because it has the impact on how then we respond, even in our earthly activities. To be preoccupied with heaven is to be preoccupied with the one who reigns there, and his purposes, his plans. And of course, he provides his provisions and his power. We 
have through him the power to be able to do that and to accomplish it. And it's also to view things and people and events of this world through the eyes and with, an etern- with his eyes and with an eternal perspective. You know, it's very easy if, if we are, are caught up in perspe- earthly perspective with all the things that are going on to sort of feel unbalanced, feel kind of uh, discouraged. And uh, there are many discouraging things going on. But when we have an eternal perspective, then that changes in terms of how these things affect us. The things above refer in this passage to the heavenly realm and focuses on the spiritual values that characterize Christ, such as Christ's tenderness, his kindness, his meekness, his patience, his wisdom, his forgiveness, his strength, purity, and love. And so we are called to live in with these characteristics of Christ. When the believer focuses on the realities of heaven, then he can turn and truly enjoy the world their Heavenly Father has created. It's an interesting aspect that when we have a truly heavenly perspective, it actually enhances how we enjoy the earth, the physical earth that we live here. When Christians begin to live in the heavenlies, then they commit themselves to the riches of heaven and they will live out their heavenly values in this world to the glory of God. And of course, that is the final important truth. It is all done to the glory of God, not just to our benefit. Now, in, in verse 2, Paul gives instruction on how to seek the things above. He tells us here how we are to do that, and he says, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on earth. Now, set your mind could simply be translated think or even have this inner disposition. So it's not Again, it's just some mystical, abstract thing, but it's a specific thing. It's a set your mind. Think about these things. Have this inner disposition. Once again, there's a present tense indicative which indicates a continuous action. It's an action that is ongoing. Setting our mind, thinking about these things. A commentator paraphrased Paul's thought here, and he says, You must not only seek heaven, you must also think heaven. So the process of seeking heaven is thinking heavenly. The believer's whole disposition should orient itself towards heaven, where Christ is, just as a compass compass needle orients itself towards true north. Obviously, the thoughts of heaven that are to fill our minds must derive from Scripture. And this is, of course, key because there are many who develop their own ideas in terms of how we are to carry this out. But if it's something that is not strictly from Scripture, then it's certainly not going to end well. Obviously, the thoughts in the Bible is the only reliable source of knowledge about the character of God and the values of heaven and the commands that we are to follow. Romans 12.2 states, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It's in the mind that we make choices as to whether we will express our new nature in holiness 
or allow our humanness to act in unholiness. It is in the mind where we process these truths. Now in this verse in Romans 2, 12, 2, we're commanded not to allow ourselves to be conformed to this world. It's saying don't let this, the world around you squeeze you into its mold. That's basically what that term means, not to be conformed to this world. But then we're commanded to be transformed by what? By the renewing of our mind. This transformation, this renewing of our mind, is accomplished by the Holy Spirit within us. However, God's Word is the instrument the Holy Spirit uses to renew our minds and to transform our living. So as we contemplate, as we study, as we meditate upon God's Word, the Holy Spirit will use that as an instrument to renew our minds. Now, to continue this third chapter of Colossians, later on in actually verse 13, we're not going to cover this point, but a very important text there, and it says, let, what, let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. And this kind of focal point of this chapter as it goes from this passage, the fact, let the word of Christ richly dwell in you. Now, to dwell has the idea of being at home in you, staying there being effectively there within you. So that is a command, is the word of Christ richly dwelling within us. Now in Scripture we learn the true, honorable, right, pure, lovely, what's of good repute, what's excellent and praiseworthy. And these are the things that our minds are to dwell on. Remember Philippians 4, 8. Such heavenly values dominate the mind and produce godly behavior when they do. Sin will be conquered, and humility, a sacrificial spirit, a sacrificial love, and assurance of our salvation will follow if we are obedient to that. Now, the latter part of verse 1, Paul makes a statement. It says, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. And this is kind of a focal point. You know, we mentioned that Christ is mentioned several times, but in this, this phrase here, he kind of focuses in on who is our anchor, who is the main source of what he's talking about in this passage, our main recourse. The believer's recourse is none other than Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That was stated earlier in Colossians. The risen and glorified Christ is seated at the right hand of God in the place of honor and majesty. And what a reassuring thought that is. And Paul makes sure that he makes emphasis here in this phrase where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Because as believers, we have the assurance that Christ is there interceding for us. Christ is there actively participating in our sanctification. The risen and glorified Christ is seated at the right hand of God in the place of honor, in the place of majesty. The right hand, of course, of a monarch was the place of honor. Now, the Bible speaks often of Christ's exalted position. In Psalm 110 and verse 1, it says, The Lord says to my Lord, 
Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord Jesus himself told the accusers at his trial that from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. It's Luke 22 and verse 69. In a sermon on the day of Pentecost, Peter told the crowd that Jesus had been exalted to the right hand of God. That's in Acts 2 and verse 33. Peter and the other apostles described Jesus to the Sanhedrin in Acts chapter 5 and verse 31 as the one whom God exalted to his right hand as a prince and a savior. And Stephen himself, when he was being martyred, exclaimed, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. That's in Acts 7 verse 56. Paul's in, in, in Romans 8, verse 34, describes Jesus as he who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. Because God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, Ephesians 1.20. So we see continuous, absolute, concrete evidence throughout the scripture of the fact that Christ is exalted, seated at the right hand of God. And then a very important passage in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3 where God himself is speaking of the fact that in these latter times he has spoken through his son, the word is through his son. And then he says in verse 3, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, that is the right hand of God. And so we have a high priest who has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. That's Hebrews chapter 8 and verse 1. Jesus told the disciples, whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. And we have the assurance that he is at the right hand of the Father to listen to our petitions. And then he said that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Now notice the important thing of that Father may be glorified in the Son. So, of course, the petitions are within the realm of glorifying God. And when he speaks about asking in my name, that has an implication with the name, it's an implication of who the whole person is. So those are prayers that are carried out, brought to the throne of God with, within who the true Jesus is. And then interesting passage is very important in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20. It says, For as many as, there, as are the promises of God in him, that is, in Christ, they are yes. Therefore, also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. All of God's salvation promises, promise of blessing, of peace, joy, goodness, fellowship, forgiveness, strength, and hope of eternal life, though all those promises are yes in Christ, meaning that they all come true in Christ. They're all made possible by his person and his work. Now, after his resurrection, the Lord Jesus told his disciples, all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. That was in, in, that's in chapter 24 of uh, Luke. In verse 44. 
And in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 30, Paul declared that Christ Jesus became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. And Paul, to the Colossians, wrote in chapter <clears throat> 1, verse 19, and then chapter 2, verse 9, For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. Again, a tremendous reassuring passage of the fact that all the fullness of God dwells in Christ. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 8, Paul states that it was the realization of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus as his Lord that made Paul willing to suffer the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that he might gain Christ. Notice that it's the assuring realization of the surpassing value of knowing Christ, of being united to Christ. Now, in this verse that we looked at in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 20, notice that the second part of the verse, after saying, for as many as are the promises of God in him, they are yes, then it says, therefore also through him is our amen to the glory of God through us. Now, amen is a solemn affirmation of the truthfulness of a statement. So Paul, in the second part, is making an affirmation of the statement that was made in the first part of that verse. Now, if we say amen, amen to the truth about Christ, then we must also live our lives according to the truth of Christ. Uh, Calvin, commenting on this verse, states this, For as he had said that in Christ God has confirmed the truth of all his promises, so now he teaches us that it is our duty to acquiesce in this ratification. This we do when resting upon Christ by a sure faith. And notice that this we do when resting upon Christ by a sure faith. We subscribe and set our seal that God is true and, and that with a view to his glory as this is the end to which everything should be referred to his glory. Now, we're going to we'll go on the passage here in Colossians and go to in verse 3. Paul then states, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so the word for, for here, notice, begins the verse with for. This word introduces and explains the reason that living in the heavenlies, that is, seeing and thinking the things above, as we've looked at, is to be the norm for the believer. It introduces and explains that reason. Believers have died to the world system through their faith, through the union with Christ in his death and resurrection. In Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14, Paul wrote, May it never be that I should boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Notice that this verse begins saying, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now the past tense here, the phrase, you have died, indicates that a death took place at salvation. 
2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, If any man is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, in what sense, then, has the believer died? When he's talking about here. Well, in the sense that the penalty for sin has been paid. The wages of sin is death, so we all who have sinned, must die. But by union with Jesus Christ, we die the required death in him. Thus the penalty is paid, and sin can never claim us again. We have died in Christ. We have thus died to sin in the sense of paying its penalty. Not that we paid it, but Christ paid it, so as we have died in him. He paid the penalty for us. So the presence and power of sin still affects us because of our unredeemed humanness still, but it cannot condemn us. And we have the power to overcome it. Not only have believers died to sin, but also their lives are hidden with Christ in God. Notice he says, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Now what does with Christ in God mean here, that we're hidden in Christ? First, as believers we share a common life with the Father and the Son. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 17 that the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. And believers are partakers of the divine nature. That's in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 4. Secondly, that new life is concealed from the world. Notice that unbelievers are unable to grasp the full import, the, the, the full reality of what a believer's new life is. And why is that? Well, this 1 Corinthians chapter 2 tells us because a natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, and he cannot understand them because they are spiritually appraised. Therefore, that new life in Christ is concealed from the world. Paul pointed out that the true manifestation of the sons of God is yet to come in the next world, so that people cannot see what believers really are like in this world. Romans chapter 8, and verse 19. For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. Waits anxiously for our revealing. The Apostle John implied the same about our true identity when he wrote in 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2, Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not yet appeared what we shall be. And then third, in terms of this term of... Uh, being uh, hidden in Christ, believers are eternally secure. And there's a wonderful, reassuring truth that we are eternally secure, hidden in Christ. He protects us as we are hidden in him from all spiritual foes. The blessings of our salvation are an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled, and will not fade away, it's reserved in heaven for us, First Peter 1.4 tells us. It is assured, it is reserved, it is accomplished. 
and we are protected and hidden in Christ. He is our great high priest, and he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's Hebrews chapter 7 and verse 25. Now those to whom the Son gives eternal life shall never perish, and no one shall snatch them out of my hand. John 10 and 28. We are hidden away deep in the shelter of our God as we are hidden in Christ. So all the riches of the eternal God are available to us, to those whose lives are hidden with him through his Son. And then finally in verse 4, it says, When Christ, who is our life, is revealed, then you also will be revealed with him in glory. Although the world may not now recognize those whose lives are hidden with Christ, that will not always be the case. When Christ is revealed at his second coming, we also will be revealed with him in glory. What a wonderful prospect that is. On that day, he'll become apparent who really belongs to the Lord, and the Lord knows those who are his. In 1 John 3, 2, the apostle writes, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. When Christ, who is our life, is revealed. Now, Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered himself up for me. When facing possible martyrdom, Paul could say, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So the key to living a risen life The key to living a life in the heavenly realm is to have a life centered on Christ. Jesus Christ, not this present world, is the center of the believer's universe. Now as we go on then quickly, then the next section, verses 5 through 9, Paul says, therefore, and of course this is a sort of turning point here, and he says, therefore, Consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come, and in them you also once walked when you were living in them. But now you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and abusive speech from your mouth. Do not lie to one another." Now, it might be a little surprise to read that living the risen life involves putting sin to death. Didn't Paul just say that that had already been done, that our sin had been taken care of? At the moment of salvation, our old self was crucified with Christ, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. That's Romans 6.6. But you see, that positional reality, that reality of our position in Christ must be worked out in the believer's practical living. And that's why in Philippians 
we are exhorted to work out our own salvation. There can be no holiness or maturity in a life where sin runs unchecked. And there are those within the evangelical church at large who, having an unbalanced view of grace, advocate the fact that you can live as sinfully as any non-believer and yet still be saved because at some point you made a decision. But that's not what Paul is saying. That position of reality must be worked out in the believer's practical living of holiness. We have died to sin's penalty, but sin's power still can be strong and our flesh is weak. That is why we must continually put sin to death by yielding to the Holy Spirit. Romans 8.13 For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. John MacArthur stated that sin is like a deposed monarch who no longer reigns nor has the ability to condemn, but works hard to debilitate and devastate all his former subjects. Now, sin is still potent, so we, you know, we can't take sin lightly, certainly. That's why we have so many exhortations in the Word of God. It commands us to live a holy life. And success against sin demands the Spirit's power. One clear thing in Scripture, we cannot do it in our own power. We have to do it under the power of the Holy Spirit. Zechariah 4, 6 applies to us not by might, nor by power, but by my Spirit. And the Spirit's weapon in our sanctification, in our living, our life for Christ, is the Word of God. As the believer is strong in the Word... He overcomes the evil one, 1 John 2, 14. Being filled with the power of the Holy Spirit, as in Ephesians 5, 18, is the same as allowing the word to dwell richly in us, as in Colossians 3, 16. Those are parallel truths that are complementary truths. So it is true that the believer has died in the sense of paying sin's penalty by being united with Christ in his death, but it's equally true that sin still attacks our unredeemed humanness. And we must, as it's a deadly enemy, therefore it must be killed by the power of the Spirit through the Word. It's a very famous work by John Owen on the mortification of sin. There's the whole thesis of the fact, the fact that we must be continually killing sin. So while we wait for the redemption of our bodies, our redeemed spirit, empowered by the Holy Spirit, must kill the sin attacking the flesh. Now in verse 5, as he goes on, he says, Therefore consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. <clears throat> now, Paul here refers to the truths in verse uh, verse, uh, verses 1 through 4, when he says, therefore, he's referring back to what we had just looked at in verses 1 through 4. Paul con constantly links doctrine and practice in his epistles, and he's doing so here in, the, in this passage. The truths that he has presented in verses 1 through 4 now are applied in verses 5 through 9 in how we are to carry out our lives. 
we're heavenly citizens and as such we need to cut ties with the sinful patterns of our former life. Now when the expression in this verse, consider as dead, literally means to kill or to put to death. It says, consider as dead the members of your earthly body, as dead to what? To the sins that he uh, mentions here. So as believers were to make a decisive resolution to put sin to death, bringing the flesh under subjection to the spirit-filled new disposition that we have in Christ as we are new creations in him. Paul here is calling for the elimination of everything in the believer's life that is contrary to godliness. And we are to discipline ourselves to godliness. In verses uh, 5 through, through 9 here, Paul gives two sample lists of sins to kill. You notice there are two samples. One is the one we're looking at in this, past, in, in this verse. Now, these two lists include some of the most common and troubling sins that we face as believers, <clears throat> but they're not, however, to, to be considered exhaustive. They're more representative, and he includes them. So, in verse 5, he lists immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Now, these are personal sins that relate to our feelings. Paul progresses kind of backwards from the evil act to the underlying motive. Immorality, the evil act, takes place because of impurity. Impurity comes from perverted passions and evil desires, which in turn come from the root sin of greed. Immorality, this word here, refers to sexual sin. In the New Testament, its meaning includes any form of illicit sex. The biblical view of immorality is summarized in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, and verse 3, where it says, This is the will of God, your sanctification, that is, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Impurity means filthiness or uncleanness. And it's a more general term than immorality. And it goes beyond the act to the evil thoughts and intentions of the mind. So see how Paul is going back here. And evil behavior begins with evil thoughts. Therefore, and this is an important point that I think is brought out in the way these are listed here, important point that the battle against all sin begins in the mind. The battle against all sin begins in the mind. The distinction between a passion and evil desire here is not really great. Passion sort of refers more to the sexual passion that's set loose in the body. Evil desire refers to the sexual lust created in the mind. But, but they're very similar. And then Paul mentions greed or covetousness. And it's mentioned last because it is the evil root from which all of the previous sins spring. That's where they come from. It it is the insatiable desire to have more, to have what is forbidden. That is greed, covetousness. And it places selfish desire above obedience to God. Greed amounts to idolatry, because it places the person's desire above obedience to God.
So the antidote for covetousness is contentment. And contentment comes from trusting God. The basis of that trust is our knowledge of him, our knowledge of his purposes for us, our knowledge of who he is as it is revealed in Scripture. Now, in verses 6 through 7 in this passage, um, it says, And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. Having given one of these lists of sins, Paul then pauses for a moment here before going on to the second list that he will give later on. And he presents here two strong motivating reasons for putting sin to death. One is in verse 6, where it is, he says, For it is on account of these things that the wrath of God will come. Now, the first motivating reason that Paul gives here is the fact that sin being, brings God's judgment. Therefore, God's wrath is this eternal ab- abhorrence of all unrighteousness. Wrath is God's constant, invariable reaction to sin. And it is a just reaction because he is a holy God and he cannot bear to be in the presence of sin. Now verse 7 then says, And in them you also once walked when you were living in them. And that's the second reason for putting sin to death. The second reason is that sin characterized the believer's past So how can a new creature act like an old one? What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Romans 6, uh, verses 1 and 2. And then Paul goes on in verse 8 and the first part of verse 9 to present another list. He says, But you also put them all aside, anger, wrath, malice, slander, an abusive speech from your mouth, do not lie to one another. Now notice that the sins in this second list are not so much personal as were the previous ones. These are more social. They're more in terms of interaction with other people. They're committed directly against other people. And so in this list, he sort of reverses the pattern of the first list, because Paul begins with the motive and then progresses to the evil act. First he says, put aside is a word that is used for taking off clothes. So he says, begins with putting those aside. As a person takes off his dirty clothes at the end of the day, so should believers discard the filthy rags of their old life. Then secondly, he puts anger Now, anger is a deep, smoldering, resentful bitterness. And unfortunately, this is something that sometimes wells up in us. It is the subtle, hard attitude of an angry person. But it has no place in the Christian life. Rather, believers are to be slow to anger, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. James 1, verse 19 and 20. And then the next word, wrath, refers to a sudden outburst of anger. Uh, The Greeks likened this word to a fire in straw, which flares up briefly and then it's gone. 
It is one of the deeds of the flesh according to Galatians chapter 5 and verse 20, and it is not acceptable behavior for Christians, Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 31. But both but anger and wrath are both closely related. You see, the churning, boiling anger that often lies just below the surface gives rise sometimes to eruptions of wrath. And then the next word is malice, and it's more of a general term for moral evil. A commentator defines it as the vicious nature which is bent on doing harm to others. So anger, wrath, and malice often result then in slander, which he presents here. The believer's speech must not be marred by insults or disparaging remarks directed at others. The result of anger, wrath, and malice is the final abusive speech, the final terms that he uses here. Now that term refers to obscene or derogatory speech that's intended to hurt and wound someone. It could be translated foul-mouthed abuse. And such talk is expressly forbidden in Scripture, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 5, verse 4. There must be no filthiness in silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, but rather giving of thanks. So Paul warns against the final sin by exhorting believers to not lie to one another. Now lying, of course, characterizes who? Satan, not God. So when believers lie, they're imitating Satan, not their Heavenly Father. We, of all people, should tell the truth. So Paul urges those who are complete in Christ, those who are partakers of his risen life, to kill sin. And that is because the battle for holiness is still being fought in the life of every Christian. We are fighting the battle for holiness every day. So how can we be victorious in our struggle with sin? Well, first, by starving it, not feeding anger or resentment, not don't cater to sexual lust or to covetousness. Second, by crowding it out with positive graces. Again, Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. Whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there's any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. Again, the mind is where the battle is fought. And then finally, that verse just a little later in the same chapter, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you that we have the assurance, Lord, as we are living our lives here, we have the assurance that we are in Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit in us and through the mediation of your word. We can have victory in our life before sin. Help us, Lord. Help each one of us to be able to depend on the Holy Spirit and the power within us and the power of your word that we may be victorious for your glory. In Christ's precious name we ask it. Amen.